The world isn't fair. It never has been and it never will be. Some people have more and some people have less. But that's not the end of the story. For economists, inequality is a critical issue because the more unequal a society is, the more challenging it is for that economy to grow and thrive. My guests this episode explore the data on inequality in Canada. Surprisingly, they talk about a disconnect between what the data is telling us and the ways in which inequality is discussed in the media or by politicians. This gap in understanding and perception creates a number of challenges because it could lead us to approaches that have very little impact on the persistent challenges of inequality in Canada. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Economics Matters, a Conference Board of Canada podcast. My guests this episode are Pedro Antunes, Chief Economist at the Conference Board of Canada, and Dr. Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Pedro and Mike, welcome to Economics Matters. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Mike. Let's begin by setting the stage on inequality in Canada, separating the facts from the fictions. Pedro, you authored a report last year that examined the realities and challenges of inequality in Canada. What were the main findings that you had? Essentially, wanted to set the record straight about whether inequality was rising or falling. During the pandemic and even prior, we'd been hearing a lot about rising inequality in a lot of developing economies. We'd been hearing about rising inequality in the United States. And somehow that thinking had been transferred to Canada, and I'd been hearing more and more about rising inequality in Canada. So I wanted to set the record straight around the fact that, in fact, there exists inequality in Canada. There's no doubt about that. But whether it's rising or falling, in fact, it's a myth that inequality had been rising. If you look since essentially 1990, inequality in Canada, measured essentially as the dispersion of income among households, how dispersed is this income? Does one person hold all the income or is that more equitably distributed? When you look at how that dispersion has evolved over time, we've actually been on a level playing field essentially since the 1990s. In the last five years, prior to the pandemic, we'd actually seen income inequality falling in Canada. During the pandemic, we had a very generous support program, the Canadian Economic Relief Benefit, and many other support programs that were applied. And that, in fact, helped reduce inequality even more. That was to set the record straight about inequality. It definitely still exists in this country, but just wanted to put the facts out there around that number. Mike, when you think about inequality, what are the major issues that you see? As Pedro points out, that there are still issues. That when we look at income inequality, things have gotten better over the last three decades. But there are still many issues. We see poverty rates are still higher, much higher than we'd like them to be. We do see the 1% pulling away from the rest of us. There's issues around wealth inequality. So the issues around home prices and affordability. You know, we see geographic disparities, differences in average incomes and average wealth by first-generation Canadian, or have your parents been here for some time? There's also concerns, naturally, around intergenerational mobility. How much of your income and wealth is determined by having the right parent? There's still a lot of issues. There tends to be this sort of disconnect by economists like Pedro and I who use inequality to mean a very specific technical thing and the general public who uses inequality to mean a very different things. 
Mike's pointed to essentially wealth inequality. I think it's important also to kind of look at the real changes over time that has happened there. And I was certainly concerned about housing affordability and certainly newcomers to Canada and whether they'd be able to get into the housing market as expensive as it is. We think about younger Canadians with this challenge about a very expensive housing market that's risen up really prior to the pandemic and even more so during the last two years. There's certainly an issue around what is our, for most Canadians, the biggest asset and how the value of that asset is rising for some and not rising for others. But again, when we look at the long history of wealth equality or inequality in Canada, there's actually been a declining trend. We've had very low interest rates for a number of years now in this country, pretty near three decades, really. And that has allowed the home ownership rate in Canada to increase. And the value of those assets has increased over time for many Canadians. When we look at the disparity of wealth in this country, wealth inequality has actually declined more rapidly than income inequality, certainly. Not to take away from the fact that there are so many challenges going forward, with, especially with immigrants and with young Canadians. You both raise a really interesting challenge when it comes to talking about inequality. And when we were thinking about the questions for this, we have the facts, as you've laid out, Pedro, and Mike, you're in agreement that broadly, as constituted, inequality is declining or is not getting worse. But the story that everyone talks about, Pedro, you talked about the context in terms of international or looking at the U.S. situation. And we know as Canadians, we look down south and sometimes we do it because it makes us feel better. And sometimes we do it because we think that the same things that are happening there are happening here. But there's such a disconnect as it relates to inequality. Mike's talked about the gap between the poorest and the billionaires or those issues around the housing situation for young individuals. Mike, I want to pull a little bit on that point you raised around, as economists, the way that economists think about inequality maybe is missing the mark on some of these other considerations because it doesn't really consider all of those areas or inequality is one of those topics that seems to move with the challenges that we're facing. Do you think that this is an area where, as economists, the definitions or the concepts we're using need to be updated to reflect the way that things are talking about it? Or is it something where we need to help people understand when we're talking inequality, we're talking about this, when we're talking about wage gaps or discrepancies between the top and the bottom or intergenerational mobility or intergenerational equity? These are wholly separate topics that need to be parsed out. I certainly think it is a challenge for Canadian economists to talk about this topic because, first of all, the trends are different in Canada than the United States. And oftentimes, our economic discourse is dominated by what is happening in the U.S. and happening to U.S. voices. Secondly, I find any topic that an economist talks about where actually things are getting better, it's harder to convince people of that. There's this idea in economics that all economic news is bad. If wages go down, obviously that's bad. But, you know, if wages go up, then, you know, inflation is coming and that's bad. So you take any sort of economic indicator and you can always tell a bad news story. When it comes to public concerns about inequality, I think we should take the general public seriously, but not literally. In the sense that I don't think it's always helpful to tell people like, no, that's not happening. And the Gini coefficient or some metric is telling them no. But I do think it is helpful to say, okay, well, 
here's the good news part of the story that, in fact, general broad inequality is getting better. But we also hear you that there are things that you are concerned about, like the 1% pulling away, and those things are getting worse. I do think having a conversation with people that's non-confrontational, right? That we're not just going out and telling people that are wrong, but adding some nuance and some context to the discussion can be quite helpful. Peter, you've been talking about this for your research. Are you finding people responsive to the messaging you're giving, or are you having to adjust with the same thing that Mike's saying? In the report, we actually do talk about some of these discrepancies between essentially the top 0.1% or top 1% and the rest of the folks in the economy. There has been essentially for the very high income earners, there has been very strong growth in incomes. When we look at market incomes, that's not only their wages and salaries, but also returns on their investments, et cetera. And we have seen those incomes of the top 1% grow very strongly, the top 0.1% grow even more strongly. And that's certainly an issue and it's factual. What we're looking at though is post-market income, we actually apply taxes and transfers to incomes earned in the market. And it's when we look at the after-tax, after-transfer incomes, in other words, people benefit from certain subsidies and certain programs at the federal and provincial levels. And we also have a progressive tax system in this country. And when we look at the effect of that, in fact, we do see that that is pushing incomes or at least after-tax incomes in the right direction. The other thing I think is really important is that there are blatant gaps in incomes, market incomes, employment incomes across different groups in Canada. And all you have to do is look at what women earn, for instance, versus what men earn in Canada in 2020, there's a 36% gap between those two groups. And then you can go across the board and look at racialized groups. You can look at Indigenous peoples in Canada, and you can see that there are very different incomes earned in the market. So these are all things that policy can address and consider. And these are the very real situation that Canadians out there are feeling when they're looking at their own incomes versus what others are earning. Yes, inequity has been steady and declining, but it's not to take away from the fact that there are problems. Another comparison, if I might add quickly, is when we look at our situation versus other jurisdictions, you know, the Gini coefficient and these kinds of economic measures are a really good way for us to benchmark across the board. We know we're doing very well versus the U.S., but we're pretty much middle of the pack versus most developed economies across the world. There's certainly room to improve, and there are many other jurisdictions doing better than us. Mike, you've told me, reframes the way that I want to ask the next question, because fundamentally, I want to ask you about some of the big ideas or big solutions that you see to try to help us address inequality. What I'm hearing from both of you is there's some really critical things that we do need to deal with as a country. And rather than be distracted by the shiny thing over here, we should really focus on the things that we need to deal with in Canada. Where are some of the big ideas that you see as opportunities for us to deal with the actual issues that are affecting us in inequality? Some of the measures that have worked, we can reflect on those. In 2016, we introduced the Canada Child Benefit. We've seen other programs like Old Age Security and the Guaranteed Income Supplement for Older Canadians. And we know that these programs have helped reduce poverty among the very young and the very old in this country. Obviously, these kinds of programs that are essentially income-tested programs that provide some sort of basic income, we know that they have an impact on helping to level the playing field on incomes. 
whether we can afford them and how much we can afford, of course, is a question because during the pandemic, we had the CERB program that came in. That was a very generous program, but we couldn't afford a program like that on an ongoing basis. We need to essentially take a look at what can be done and where we can add perhaps a federally distributed income program like these other programs I just discussed. They can be efficiently delivered through the tax system, but then you've got to look at where can we reduce some of the costs associated with some of these other programs, perhaps at the provincial level. But most important to me, I think, is the issue around access to health, access to education. These are really important to bring people out of poverty and help people essentially do better in terms of their market incomes. These two pieces around access to healthcare, access to education, these are really important pieces around doing better on intergenerational mobility. Canada does quite well in comparison to many other jurisdictions on intergenerational mobility, certainly in comparison to the U.S. But of course, if you're starting off with a lot of wealth as a person in Canada compared to newcomers, immigrants in particular, especially as we're seeing more and more immigration numbers coming in to fill the roles and the workforce that we need, this can create kind of an ongoing challenge in terms of this intergenerational wealth. Taxing wealth is very hard. But taxing inheritance is something that we could do. We need to be careful about it because we don't want unintended consequences of capital leaving the country. But currently, Canada has no inheritance tax, and perhaps there's room for some levers there to help, again, level the playing field. Mike, what about you? What are the big ideas that you see? I do think there is room for increased income supports, particularly for 18 to 65-year-olds, which tends to be the missing middle as far as income supports go. I think that might be necessary, but it certainly isn't sufficient. And one of the issues we would have on that is, let's go back to the housing discussion where rents are up double digits year over year. My hometown of London, Ontario, rents are up 30% for first-time tenants. You know, basically just giving people more money to rent the same number of apartments doesn't create more housing. It just creates more rent inflation. I'm a believer in a concept called supply-side progressivism, where if we want to improve the quality of life for lower-income or middle-income Canadians, we need to address supply-side shortages. We need to be looking at finding ways to build more housing. I think the provincial government here in Ontario has the right target of 1.5 million homes. We need to find a way to do that in a way that creates climate-friendly, family-friendly homes in an environmentally sustainable way. We need more mental health supports. We need more transit. And I think this is where the differences in worldview can come out, that I don't think it's the best public policy to create basic incomes to give everybody enough money to buy a car. Rather, I think we should be putting that money into transit so people don't have to buy a car, that they can get to where they need to go. And we're not requiring people to purchase all of these things in order to fully incorporate themselves into Canadian life. I do think there is certainly room for enhanced income supports but I think we need to look at the missing supply side of the economy, whether it comes to, to housing or transit or healthcare or so on. Historically speaking, people would move to where the economic opportunities are. We've seen across developed countries since the end of World War II, this real sort of urbanization of jobs moving to larger cities and people who are qualified 
for those jobs to be able to take them. A kid growing up in southwestern Ontario in the 80s and 90s, but you're really good at finance, you would be able to move to uh, Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver and start a career there. But over the last decade or so, we've actually seen migration go the other way, that because of high home prices, younger, talented people aren't moving towards our cities. In fact, they're moving away from our cities. So this becomes a problem that if you are a talented kid, say, living in northern Ontario and are really good mechanical engineer or really good at finance, are you going to be able to start your career someplace that has those jobs? Now, that might be changing with the advent of work from home, but that almost is a, a double-edged sword that, yeah, you might be able to do those jobs now from Kenora, but you might also be able to do those jobs from a beach in Thailand, which sounds awesome until you realize that you're now competing with a kid who never left Bangkok. This economy is changing. Work from home may change some of those locational benefits. But again, that is a double-edged sword for Canadians. Mike certainly points to improving our ability to ensure that people are fully participating in the labor market to the best of their abilities. Efforts need to be made there. And if we go to the immigration, if we go to some of those groups that we talked about earlier, where education is really important and one where we have progressed is on the gap between earnings for men and women, and we have seen a steady decline in that gap. A really positive program that we're putting in place now is the federal daycare program. The federal money that is going towards provincial daycare programs, we've seen the results of that in Quebec helping boost participation rates for women and allowing them to participate more fully in the workforce. I also would say to all of these programs that we want to put in place, we've just come through a very costly period in terms of our finances, both at the federal and provincial levels, where, as we know, on a daily basis, struggling with what to do with healthcare and how to finance that going forward. We need to look at how support is delivered at the provincial versus federal level. Where can we have efficiency in terms of, through a tax system, making sure those minimum incomes are met? Mike talked about the working poor. I think that is a real problem across many municipalities in this country. Ultimately, it has to be delivered both with income support and support programs that we've discussed, but also on the supply side. It's a terrific idea, not just for housing, but for transportation. I think that's really important. I remember looking at case studies of people working in lower income jobs in Toronto. The transit costs are a phenomenal chunk of their income. So these are all things that we need to look at in our confederation, provincially and federally. Now, how easy that's going to be to do, I don't know. But I think there's smarter ways to deliver some of these programs. So given everything that we've discussed today, there's this disconnect. Fundamentally, that disconnect is happening at our most public levels. What I'm gathering from this conversation is that what it's doing is it's actually leading a lot of the thinking and the policy prescriptions away from things that may actually address the challenges that we're facing today. What do you think needs to happen to allow us to have a more fact-based discussion around the realities of inequality, where we are doing well and where we are not doing well, so that we could actually have a better discussion on the ideas that might help our country deal with the real issues? Mike, why don't you start this one? 
I think, again, just breaking it down more granularly and talking about what's working well, what's improving, and what isn't. Focusing more in on the parts that aren't working as well as they could be. And again, that might be the top 0.1% pulling away. You know, that's the, the continued gender wage gap and so on. Trying to, as much as possible, take this discussion at a 30,000 foot level, which oftentimes is sort of very blurry, and then moving it down, going, okay, like, let's focus on these particular sub-issues. If you do that, you get better public policy. And I think you quickly find that one size does not fit all, that the policies that help with the 0.1% pulling away from everyone else is not the same policies that help with the gender wage gap or not the same policies that help with geographic inequalities. I'd go back to those fundamentals on the education. We have to be very aware of where we're lacking in terms of attaining what is needed, where the growth is. And the growth today in Canada is a knowledge-based workforce. Where we've generated more jobs over the last, I don't know, decade, certainly since the decline of the manufacturing sector in the early 2000s, we have created jobs in professional, scientific, technical services on the private sector. We've created public sector jobs in public administration and healthcare and education, for instance. This is the economy of Canada today. This is what's driving the demand for workers in Canada. And it's very real today. We see that across the board, very tight labor markets, lots of demand. The piece of bringing people and improving their skills and their education so that they can participate more fully in the workforce is key. Of course, it's very efficient because those workers not only benefit themselves with higher incomes, but they benefit all of us. They benefit the economy and they benefit the tax dollars that uh, support those programs. The other piece that's crucial here is we're now in a situation where the workforce on a net basis grows because of immigration. If we look at school leavers versus retirements, that's a net negative. It's immigration that is going to be driving uh, the employment. We've just seen over the last few months a big effort and push to bring in greater numbers of immigrants. We need to ensure that we have the credential recognition of the labor force participation so that we get those folks fully into the labor force as quickly as possible. And that is settlement services, that is language services and credential recognition, really important. A lot of work that the conference board has done on those. When you bolster incomes, you help reduce inequality. You have what's now the focus of many people is inclusive growth. And this is what we're talking. Thank you, Mike and Pedro. It's always a bit challenging to have to set the record straight, not only understand what the reality is. And I know as economists, as Mike said, it's probably hard for you to give good news, but I appreciate that you did. It's really beneficial to hear not only what are the realities, but where are the areas where we need to make some real changes as a country. So I appreciate you both taking the time. Well, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Economics Matters is a Conference Board of Canada podcast. You can check out more economic outlooks and analysis at conferenceboard.ca. If you like what you hear, leave us a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.